Welcome to Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray that you are blessed by this message from Pastor John Roberts. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. If you want to, if I wanted to entitle this message, um, I guess the, the title would be, What Now? And that really is, is stemming from the question that's going to be on a lot of people's minds Wednesday morning. You know, in case you all haven't figured out, in two days we're voting. And this is, um, to say this has been a different election cycle is to just not even understand what the word understatement is. And I'm not going to get political today other than uh, I will tell you, and this is just, I've said this before from the pulpit and you, you all know where I stand. If I look at the, the candidates that are running, I don't find anybody I'd vote for if they were standing alone. You know, I really, I, I'm, I really wish I had a, a, another choice, but we don't. We've got a couple of people that, um, by the very definition, they, they both qualify for despicable. They just, they're not, you know, of, I, 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 to quote, you know, I forget his name now, I lost it, but I think you could take the um, first hundred names out of the phone book of New York City and just randomly pick any of the hundred and you'd probably get a better charactered person than either one of the major candidates we're facing. But with that in mind, you still, and, and part of the reason I, I'm bringing this up, I have read over the last week or so, there are several Christian organizations that are urging Christians to boycott the election. Just don't vote. And I'm telling you, I, I cannot go along with that. It's, it's not just a right. Voting is a right, but it's not just a right. It is also a responsibility. But what do you do when you have two people on the ballot and you just don't like either one of them? Well, for me, and I'll just give you what I'm, where I'm going, I look at where do their, the parties that they represent, where, are, where does that party want to take our country? And for me, there's no other issue that is more important than the issue of life and the issue of abortion. And because I, Brother Bill and I were talking, we weren't talking about this, but we were just talking about leadership qualities. And, and I made the statement to him, if, I'm, if I was looking at someone for leadership in a church as a pastor, before I even started to look at their qualities of character, I want to know two things about them. I want to know, first of all, are they con a consistent giver? Because the Bible very clearly says, where you put your treasure, your heart will go also. And if you're not a consistent giver, then I'm not even going to look at you. And the second thing I want to look at is, are you enthusiastic about being a Christian? Are you happy to go to church? Is it the highlight of your week to get to go to church and, and fellowship with believers and hear the word? Are you, do you get out of bed in the morning and think, wow, I've got another day I can, I can live for, for Jesus? That's just a floor, let alone 
other qualities that the Bible describes for leadership. Well, when it comes to a, a, an election, I look at the issue of life. And for me, that's a bottom floor. I don't care who's running. If you don't, if you can't look and say with a certainty that killing an unborn child is evil, then I'm sorry, you are not worthy to hold office in, at any level, local, state, federal, and I will never cast my vote for anyone like that. That is the only circumstance where I would say I'm not voting for either one of these people if they both say we support abortion rights. Now, you are a free moral agent. You vote how your conscience is. But I'm going to tell you, at some point, you're going to stand before Jesus. And, and when you look at that, you know, I don't know at this point, approaching 100 million babies have been aborted. And you see those 100 million souls and Jesus looks at you and says, why did you vote this party or this per individual at whatever level? Because they stood for abortion rights. I don't want to have to look at them and say, well, you know, they had a good economic plan. They had a great foreign policy plan. That's just me. I, I can't get past that one. If you can't get that one right, you, your moral compass is not broken. It's just absent. But you vote however you want to. But I will say this, and, I, and that's all of my electioneering right there. I will say this, and I will quote, I'll say this without any shadow of a doubt. Come Wednesday morning, a lot of people are going to be disappointed. And if the person you vote for and you support wins, for most people, their reaction is going to be, oh my Lord, what do we do now? That's where our nation is. That's where the world is. We, we are, as a nation, we are at a crossroads. But I guarantee you, I, and this is, this again, this is my opinion, but I don't, I don't think it matters either one which one gets election. I think four years from now, the entire electorate's going to look back and think, why in the world did we vote for them? Everybody's going to be disappointed. Why? Because for one thing, our expectations are, are too high. But for another, we are at a stage in, in the history of the world where, <clears throat> and you may not know him, but there was a philosopher in the, the late 1800s, uh, Frederick Nietzsche. And Nietzsche has one of my favorite quotes, his, and everybody knows it. What doesn't kill you will make you stronger, which is proof positive that Nietzsche was an idiot. Because there are a lot of things that won't kill you, but they will scar you, they will maim you, they will hinder you from doing what God's called you to do. But Nietzsche was very famous. He was, he was uh, the son of a Lutheran pastor in Germany. And he was, he was a Christian. He was faith-believing until he went to the university. And he went, to, just like a lot of people, when he went to university, they sucked his faith out of him. They convinced him there is no God. And the culmination of Nietzsche's philosophy and his philosophical impact on the world was the now famous, infamous, however you want to describe it, Time magazine cover in, I think it was 1966, that said, is God dead? And it really was a true question. Is there even a God? And Nietzsche's quote was, the, you know, God is dead. We killed him. 
Which again, just proves what an idiot. If, if God is God, how are you going to kill God? I mean, that's, that's, really, that's really having a, 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 an attitude that you think you even have that power. No. But Nietzsche has had a profound influence. Nietzsche, throughout the 20th century, in fact, I'm, I personally, it's my personal belief, that Nietzsche's philosophy is what led to the, to the Nazi and fascism. And on the other side, communism. It was a secularism that said, it doesn't matter, there is no real God, and it doesn't matter really what you believe, but you need to self-actuate. You need to reach modern, um, I don't know what philosophy you would call it, mysticism, would say you need to find the God within you and actuate the best that you have. Not realizing that one of the, the, the cardinal doctrines of, of, of the Christian scriptures is the, the, the fact that every man is born depraved. And the proof of that is, if you have ever had children, even if you don't have children, but you've been around children. I, I have two wonderful children. And, and personally, I, I complained about my son one time in front of my dad. And after 45 minutes of my dad telling stories on me, I finally just begged him to quit. Because it was just getting, you know, I was not faring very well in this comparison of my son as a teenager and me as a teenager. But <clears throat> I wasn't a bad kid. And my kids were not bad kids. But you know what? I never once had to teach my children to lie. They knew how to do it. I never had to tell them when they went up against or, you know, went to the wall and found a wall socket. And they wanted to put their something in that wall socket. And I said, no. You could, you could just, you watch their little brains of a two-year-old. He said no, but he said no. And there's something in me that just wants to do it even worse now. That's where if you've ever watched the show, and I don't, I, mainly because my wife won't let me. Have you ever watched the show Cops? I mean, you, you know, and they, they always pick the worst scenes. But, but every person that's ever made a starring role on Cops, that is their attitude. You tell them no, and they're going to go just hard enough to prove that you can't tell them what to do. That's a great American virtue. Ain't nobody going to tell me what to do. Well, that basically was Nietzsche's whole philosophy. There are no absolutes. There is no God. There are no absolutes. There, you know, any morals that you have, that's just society trying to restrict your free thinking. And, and at least I have to give Nietzsche credit. He was honest enough when he carried that philosophy out. You end up with anarchy. You end up with a bunch of lost, fallen, selfish people. All I want is, you know, like the old, the old line, my name is Jimmy, gimme, gimme, gimme. It's just law of the jungle. If I've got the, I've, I want everything I can take. And if I can't hold on to it, I want to find a place to store it and take more. Whether I can use it or not, I don't care. I just want it. We are at, towards the end of the fruits of that philosophy that came out of the 20th century. Our secular society today is steeped in me. You look right now, you know, there's the big controversy, and it's not a huge controversy, but football players won't stand for the national anthem. 
And every time one of them says they talk about it, it's like, well, that's my right. Well, it is your right. But before you tell me about your rights, what I'd like to hear is what are your responsibilities and how are you holding up your responsibilities? Because I'll be honest with you, most of the people that I see that always talk about their rights, and I hear this a lot from my former students that are now in college, and they're being indoctrinated into this stuff to the max. They've taken college campuses today, have taken Nietzsche's philosophy and just amped it up on steroids. But all they talk about is I have the right to do this, I have the right to do that, and you don't have the right to offend me, you don't have the right to, to make me try to think something, and if I am, then you're just a hater. And what I have found in my lifetime, the people that concentrate on their responsibilities, they don't have time to worry about their rights. They're too busy trying to help people. When I hear rich football players saying, well, you know, I'm just I'm I'm standing up for what's right. I want to know how many boys clubs and girls clubs do you go to and volunteer your time? How many of that hundreds of millions of dollars that you've earned? How many millions have you given to charity to help bring some of those kids out of poverty to educate them? When I, I hear Christians take on sometimes the same thing. Well, I'm not going to that church because I just don't like the way that pastor preaches. Well, aren't you sweet? Are they preaching the word? Because if they are, then get over it. Now, if God hasn't called you to that church, you're probably never going to fit. And you need to find a place where God's called you and you fit and you can go to work. But, but when we come to church, it's not with the idea, I'm going to come in and I'm going to get blessed and fed today. We should come to, the, to, to church to think, where can I give? How can I get involved? But instead, the, this philosophy of the world has bled over into the church where it's become a spectator sport. It's like going to a football game. I come down, I come in, I sit, I, I get fed, I put a few bucks in the, in the offering plate because, you know, you got to pay for your admission. But don't ask me to do anything. Don't ask me to sacrifice. Because if you do, then you're just asking way too much. But... All of this feeds into that Wednesday morning question, what now? Because I'll be honest with you, I, I see a lot of people, I find, found myself falling over into this, becoming emotionally entrapped and emotionally engaged about all these election issues. And it finally got to the point, and anybody that knows me, I am a news hound. I could watch news 24 hours a day and never get tired of it. I just love to stay informed. And I have turned it all off because every time I do, I'm tempted to pick something up and throw it through the TV. It's just gotten so emotionally charged that it's like, why do I put myself through this? So I finally, brilliant me, thought, just quit watching it. And so I did. I turned it all off. I made up my mind how I was voting months ago. But, but <clears throat> I look at this. And I think no matter who gets elected, now, now, I say this with some trepidation because you can, you're, you're always on thin ice and dangerous territory when you start talking about when Jesus is going to come back. Because Christians were convinced at the year 500, the year 1000, the year 1500, he's got to come back now. Everything's in, in place. 
But for the first time in that I can see and since Jesus ascended into heaven, all of the pieces are in place. Prophetically, there's only two things that have to happen on the prophetic calendar for Jesus to return. That's the shout and the trumpet. That's it. And that happens milliseconds before we meet him in the air. There's no, there is no prophecy that has to happen before Jesus can return. That's doctrine is called the eminence of, of Christ's return. And it's accepted pretty much universally. But I look around and I see this is every piece is in place and ready for the soon return of Jesus. My personal opinion is we are on the very cusp. I think within the next 10 years, it's more likely than not that Jesus is going to come back and snatch his church out. And we're going to, the world will go into the tribulation. We're going to go for a seven-year meal, which is going to make this church's fellowships look pale in comparison. And believe me, it would take something to make our fellowships pale in comparison. But I will also tell you with great assurity, I could be totally wrong. That's why voting is important. Because apart from a revival in our country, we are heading in the wrong direction. We are becoming more and more secular. I mean, all you got to do, and I don't recommend it, but you turn on a secular radio station. You listen to the garbage, and I am not exaggerating, the utter garbage that comes out of radios that kids just feed on 24 hours a day. It's no wonder their minds are, are messed up. You look at what, what is on normal television, which is tame compared to what's on cable television. And it would have gotten people thrown in jail in the 50s. And it's considered normal and mild by today's standards. We're getting farther and farther and farther away, which is perfectly lines up with Scripture because Jesus said just before he comes back, it will be as in the days of Noah. And if you go back in Genesis and look at the days of Noah, God said, I'm, I'm repenting of ever creating man because everywhere I look, there's violence. Everywhere I look, there's sin. There's deprivation and, 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 and sin that, you know, we're, we're inventing ways to sin. Well, the problem has been, and let me just, this is, and I'm going to, I'm including all of us because... We all fit the mold, at least some. The problem, Jesus addressed it. Matthew um, chapter 5, verse 13. And we may go on. We will go on. But let's start with verse 13. This is Jesus talking about the church. He's addressing the Jews right now, but he's addressing, Jew, or he's addressing Jewish leaders. He says, you are the salt of the earth. And in that context, salt is a preservative. Before refrigeration, there, was only, there were only one or two, of two ways to preserve meat. That was either to salt it or to dry it. Well, I've had both. Neither one of them are real tasty. But I would prefer salted meat to dried meat. Jerky, I mean, you, unless you've got good teeth, you may lose a tooth on, on dried jerky. Even salted meat, you better soak it and get the salt out of it before you eat it or it's not going to be very tasty. But he's, he's compared us to the salt of the earth because as the church, we are the preservative. 
the world is going to go to hell if the church doesn't stand up and be the church. It doesn't have any hope without us. That's their natural tendency and they cannot stop themselves. Why? Because you can't cast out your friends. And they are, they are enemies of God until they get saved. Now that doesn't mean that God doesn't love them. It doesn't mean that Jesus didn't pay the price for their sins. But until you accept that gift, you will still be an enemy of God. But when the church, when we look at that and said, well, I'm the salt of the earth. But notice his next phrase. But if the salt loses its flavor, King James have savor. I've always looked at that and thought, what does that mean? How does salt lose its flavor? Because I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm unconventional in everything I do. And I don't care what the dietitians tell me. I'm putting salt on my food. I like it. And I salt it heavy. If I get high blood pressure, I may give it up. If I get to a point where I, I have water retention problems, I'll give it up. But until I have a physical problem, I'm salting my food because I like food. I like salt on my food. It tastes good. So what does he mean here? If we are salt, how can we lose that flavor? Well, I actually, you'd think I would have, because I've had this question a long time, you'd think I would have been smart enough to look it up before. But I went this morning and I looked this up. And literally the word there for savor, the Greek word, means to become adult, to become a moron. And, and when you look at the picture, because most words are pictographs, they give you a picture. The, the, the pictograph of this is someone who becomes silent due to ignorance. We lose our flavor when either because of laziness or neglect, or fear of not fitting in, we become silent about the, what the Bible teaches and about who we are in our society. And to be honest with you, for the American church, for the most part, that is where we have been for years and years. People had the attitude, people in the church had the attitude that, well, you know, uh, and, and I guarantee you, the secularist will push you to do this. Faith is for your, that's for Sunday. That's for your private life. But don't bring that into the public square. Because how dare you try to legislate your morality onto me? Oh, I hate that argument. And every time I hear that argument, what I want to say to the person, I very rarely ever do it because I try not to be, and I know you'll find this amusing, but I try not to be controversial and in your face. Yeah, I know. <clears throat> that is the truth. I, I, from your laughter, I know. I don't succeed a lot. But, but when you say that, what I want to do is go get a nine millimeter and point it at their forehead and say, so you're all right with the state of Indiana imposing their morality on me when my morality says I would be perfectly okay putting a bullet in your brain because the world would be better off without somebody as idiotic as you. And suddenly, they're all for the state of Indiana legislating morality to keep me from murdering them. Now, I don't literally want to murder people, but it's a metaphor. People are really okay with legislating morality as long as your morality doesn't restrict their behaviors. 
And I will give you a perfectly great example. And it, it comes down to political correctness. You light up a cigarette, and I don't, I'm a reformed smoker. I haven't had one for 30 years. It drives me crazy when I get around smoke. So I'm saying that I'm not advocating smoking. But you light up a cigarette in a public place, and you will be shamed. People will point out to you, you're within eight feet of the entrance of a public building. You can't smoke here. It's the law. I've even seen billboards now. Smoking in the car with a child is child abuse. I know a lot of people, they were abused their whole lives because their parents smoked around them all the time. Now, I don't recommend that. It's not healthy. But they don't have a problem legislating their morality unless their, your morality happens to say it's against the rules to kill babies. And even Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was a far left politician back in the, I think he said this in the 70s or 80s, when someone brought up about partial birth abortion, he said, I'm just telling you, I don't feel comfortable. This is, this is way too close to infanticide. It's not too close to infanticide. It is infanticide. And the, the culture as a whole wants to push towards that. And if we stay silent, they will win. Now, I'm not talking about marching in the streets, taking political action, because I've said all along, if you think the answer is politics, you're wrong. Politicians will disappoint you, not most of the time, but every time. That doesn't mean that our politics is not important and your vote's not important. Because who you elect, especially to the office of president, will direct public policy to take it very quickly or give us the opportunity to resist that direction. And if Jesus doesn't return, we need another awake, uh, uh, a spiritual awakening in this country. We need a third great awakening. But I don't want to see my country go down the tubes waiting on a th that third great awakening. I want to vote my conscience and also have the church be salt and light. Jesus went on to there. We were, we were in, in Matthew... Um, 513. Let's go on and read 14. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. So let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. If people are in darkness and you don't let your light shine... They will never know there's an alternative. Now, I guarantee you, you do that, you're going to be called a hater, a homophobe. You pick up the phobia, you're going to be labeled that kind of a phobe. But if you're not willing to take a stand and say, this is wrong, and I, I, I Jesus, that is sin, Thank God the answer, and let, let me be perfectly clear. If you're a woman here and, and you've had an abortion, God's not condemning you. That's a sin like any other. 
And he forgave it at the cross. If you're a man here and you encouraged and pushed a woman to have an abortion, there's forgiveness for that sin. Let's face it, you know, if you're going to condemn someone for having an abortion, if you're going to condemn one for, having, for being a homosexual, then I hope you have led a perfect life. Because if you've ever had sex outside of marriage, and if you're a child of the 60s, there's a darn good chance that you've done that. Now, maybe you didn't. Thank God. You've got a unique testimony. But when God lists sins, he'll list sex outside of marriage right along homosexuality, and right alongside murder. Peter said, if you, if, if you try to uphold the law and you break it in the slightest little detail, you've broken all of it. So it's not a matter of condemning people for sin. It's a matter of not preaching to people that there's a way out of sin. There's a better way to live. But if we can't, if, if we don't open our, our, our mouths, it's never going to happen. Let's go to 1 Peter. Peter says something very similar. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Peter says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. Well, first of all, you're never going to be asked to give a defense or asked for the reason that the hope is within you if people don't see any hope in you. That's why I said earlier, one of the floor um, traits that I look for in leaders, are you excited to be a Christian? Are you excited to be a part of the body of Christ? If you're not, then you're not ready to lead anybody. That's the whole point of being a Christian. I want to be able to get them. Now, that doesn't mean that every day you get up. Because I had, when Gina and I were at Raymond, I had one guy in my class every morning. And you have to understand, I worked till midnight every night. Got home about 1 o'clock, went to sleep, got up at 6, got ready and was at school by 7. And I'm sitting there. I've got, you know, three-fourths of a pot of coffee in me. And I'm thinking, it ain't kicking in. I'm tired. And there was that one guy. Walks in the class. Good morning. And you just wanted to slap him. <laughs> so you don't have to be that good morning guy. But you do have to be excited about being alive and about being a Christian. If all people ever hear from you is complaint after complaint after complaint, then I'm looking and thinking, why is your life so bad? Are you not saved? And if you are saved, why do you not recognize that you do have a, a reason to be excited about being in the world? You have an answer to the world's problems. But they're never going to look at you if, they, if their attitude is and they look at you and they think, my God, you're more messed up than I am. Why would I ever ask you for advice? Paul said in Colossians 4, 6, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Grace ought to always be on our lips. And grace isn't just the forgiveness of sin. It's also the power of God to live that life out. To walk above your circumstances. 
I get criticized sometimes for preaching the prosperity message and I preach it unashamedly. If you think God doesn't want to prosper you, then you are highly mistaken. He said, I have, he lived a righteous life, but took on all of my sin, not only my sin, but the sin of the world, and in exchange gave me his righteousness. If he did that when I was his enemy, why would he be opposed to me now? My father was one of the most generous men I ever met. And he pales in comparison to the generosity of Jesus. But that, that, that prosperity isn't just about money. It's about being excited and realizing there's no problem the enemy can throw at me that Jesus hasn't already conquered. And I get excited about that. Now, I don't like going through the problems, but I, we had a pastor in Tulsa, Pastor Gandian, and he had a, one of his favorite sayings was, every time I hit a challenge, my attitude ought to be, look at the testimony I'm going to have when this one's resolved. Instead, most of the time when we hit a challenge, James said, think it not strange when fiery trials come upon you. And the first thing most of us think about, wow, this is strange that I would be put under this. God, where are you? He's right there with you. He's in you. And he's saying, just tap into my power. Tap into my grace. Be salt in this situation. Because you're not the only one going through it. And when people see you facing those issues and conquering them, they will come and say, how do you do that? And it gives you an opportunity to say, well, his name is Jesus. Your, your speech can be sprinkled with grace. But let me be honest, there is coming a time, and again, it doesn't matter who gets elected on Tuesday, our culture, especially in, unless Jesus puts off his return, we can have a second great awakening. And I'm praying for it. I'm doing my best because, you know, God told me one time, I said, Lord, I want revival. And he said, well, revive yourself, son. How do you expect to have revival amongst your friends if you're not revived? Start at home. Get excited yourself. Revive yourself. Be like David after, you know, the, the, the tribes came in and, and destroyed and stole everything they had at Ziklag. It said David encouraged himself. Because a lot of people tell, well, I don't have anybody to encourage me. You got the whole Bible to encourage you. Get into it and find some encouragement and encourage yourself. Amen. But barring that, the days are going to get darker and darker and darker. That's what happened in the days of Noah. Remember, it took Noah 120 years to build the ark. He took a few barbs in those 120 years. And people laughed at him. And, but they kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse until God finally said, that's it. Get in the ark. Pull all the animals in. Everybody else is dying. Well, we're coming up on that ark time. Only instead of building a wooden boat, our ark is going to be that marriage supper of the Lamb. When Jesus pulls the believers out, preserves us, and then deals with the unbelief on the earth. And even during that time, the very first act of, of the, the tribulation, 
when Jesus snatches us out of here and we start the marriage supper of the Lamb, the very first act is that Jesus is going to send 144,000 angels to preach to 144,000 Jews and convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. And he's going to have 144,000 evangelists go out all over the world and start preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Many of them will be martyred, but many people will come to know Jesus in the middle of the tribulation. When Jesus comes back and starts judging the earth and judging sinful mankind for rejecting him, in the midst of that, his grace is still powerful enough that he's sending evangelists out to preach, get saved, the time is almost over. And people are going to turn to him. How much more now? When we live in the church age, the age of grace, should we be out being his voice and preaching that gospel? Angels don't preach the gospel in this time period. He's got the body of Christ to do that. Amen? But if we are really close to that coming, there's not going to be a lot of difference between the day after the rapture and the day before the rapture for natural man. It's going to grow darker and our times are going to get worse. If you want to see a picture of what this is like, look back at the time of, of, of Moses or the time of Elijah. Elijah ministered to the ten northern tribes of Israel. They were Jews, but they had lost their faith. They broke political ties with Jerusalem and they moved off. But every year the Jews were faithful. They'd go back to Jerusalem to make their sacrifice. And so the king looked at it and he said, you know, we can't have this. Eventually these people are going to end up pledging allegiance to that king. So they set up their own center of, of worship in Samaria. And they had their own sacrifices. And one of them, you see it all through um, Exodus, you see it through, or all through Deuteronomy, you see it in, in Ezekiel, who ministered during that time. Um, you see them passing their children through the fires of Moloch. When times got hard, they would sacrifice their children. You know what the number one reason that people state for aborting babies? Besides, I'm just not ready. I can't afford it. I don't really want to stand in front of Jesus. Now, again, if a person's had an abortion and they seek forgiveness, God's not going to judge that sin any more than he judges any other sin because that's under the blood of Jesus. But I don't want to have to stand in front of him and say, I put money ahead of babies, especially as a Christian. I don't want to live across the tracks. I want to live real close to the throne room. I want to have so many good works that Jesus says, yeah, I want you really close to me. Amen? Because after all, when you go in heaven right now, you're going to find my picture on his refrigerator. So I, I, want, it, I want to stay there. And I don't want the, that one with all the dart holes in it either. That's a joke. But if you look at the time of Elijah or you look at the time of Moses, in, in Moses' example, Joseph had gone into Egypt and my personal opinion, I think Joseph converted the, the Pharaoh that he was there with. I think he, he ended up getting that Pharaoh to be a believer. But by the time Moses' time period came along, it says that another Pharaoh was raised up who did not know or did not remember Joseph. That's the Bible's way of saying they were from a different strain. They didn't 
believe in the Jewish God and they were going to keep them oppressed. And if you look at Elijah, Elijah was ministering to this, this congregation in Samaria. They were doing all kinds of weird stuff. They not only sacrificed to Jehovah, but they would sacrifice to Baal. They sacrificed to Moloch. They sacrificed to any God they could think of because they wanted to cover all their bases. They're kind of like businessmen today. They give to the Republicans, the Democrats, and any other political party they can find because they want to be in good with all of them. It's, it's self-defense for them. But Elijah had to minister to these people. Well, what's the one common denominator between Elijah's ministry and Moses' ministry? The presence of miracles. And the reason I'm encouraged and I'm not discouraged when I, and when I wake up on Wednesday morning, I'm either going to be a little disappointed, a whole lot disappointed, or if, if my candidate wins, I'm going to be, oh Lord, now we really need your help. But I'm not discouraged by that because I know that even as the world gets darker and darker and darker, Proverbs says the path of a righteous man grows lighter and lighter. And I know, I know from my, as a kid playing around in caves, the darker the cave, the, the less light you need to illuminate the whole room. In the darkest of nights, it only takes a little bit of light to shine forth and show as a contrast. The, the, the letter to the church at Laodicea, um, or lost his name now, um, Reverend Dubisi, um, ministered the other day about hot and cold. And he was right. You take something straight out of the freezer, flies will avoid it. You take something right out of, off the pot and it's boiling hot, flies will avoid it. But you take lukewarm room temperature, flies love it. Jesus said, you're neither hot nor cold. Well, what's the difference between being hot and cold? Because I've heard people say, well, you, if you're running from God, that's better than, than just being lukewarm. No, that's not what that's talking about. That's talking about like being on a hot day and having a cold drink. My dad was convinced growing up that when we worked out in the field that you shouldn't have ice in your, in your water supply because it would be too big a shock to your body. So we always had lukewarm water. It'll let you sweat more. Well, I don't, I, I, I love my dad, but he was wrong. Cold water will reduce your body temperature. It'll keep you from overheating. Besides that, it tastes better when it's cold. On a hot day, cold drinks refresh. On a cold day, hot drinks refresh. But it doesn't matter whether it's hot or cold outside, lukewarm is just never that satisfying. That's why God says, don't be lukewarm. If somebody's hot, be a cold drink for them. If they're cold, be a hot drink for them. Whatever their need, be there and bring me into the situation and relieve them. And believe me, as the days get darker and darker, as things get worse and worse in fear, because the, the, the Bible is very clear, in the last days, Jesus is going to look around. He said, many are going to faint for fear. Well, if there is a, a, a watchword for the day that we live in, it's fear. Everybody fears everything. Well, I'm afraid to walk in my neighborhood. Why? Has anybody been killed in your neighborhood lately? Anybody been kidnapped in your neighborhood lately? Well, never. Then what are you so afraid of? 
Now, I'm not saying be foolish, but also don't walk in fear. You go with the light of the gospel. And especially when you get in social situations and someone starts spouting garbage like, well, I just don't feel it's right to, you know, to impose my moral stand on everybody else. Yeah, you do. You're perfectly willing to do it as long as it's your morals and not mine. So don't give me that garbage. Be willing to speak up. Don't be disagreeable, but voice your opinion. Be the salt and be the light. Because if you're not, nobody will. And the darker it gets, the worse it gets, will there be persecution? You betcha. People going to call you names? They already are. And if they're not, you may have a problem already. You may be so lukewarm that they don't know you're a Christian. I don't want to get to heaven and have God look at me and say, did anybody know you were one of my followers? Well, I don't know, God. I tried to keep it hidden because you know they got mean to me. I had two students one time and they were good kids, but they came to me crying. Mr. Roberts, we're being persecuted for our faith. I said, really? How? Well, so-and-so threw a box of, or th threw a packet of crackers, saltine crackers at us at lunch. And I'm thinking, honey, if that's the worst persecution you ever face, can consider yourself blessed. But they really thought that was horrible. Well, I'm sure it didn't make them feel great. But when you, are, def when you are, are chastised, when you are persecuted, look up. That just means you're standing. Now, if you're being persecuted because you've just been a jerk, you've been a smart aleck. And believe me, I have, a, I have two PhDs. One is in, from the school of bad jokes. The other is from the school of smart aleckness. And I would tell you what my dad used to call that, but I am in the pulpit, so I'm not going to do that. But... If that's why you're getting persecuted, that's not a badge of honor. But if you're being lovely, but you're presenting the Christian worldview to someone, and they just say, you are just so full of it, so what? So what? Your life is not your own. You were bought with a price. Be willing to stand up. Jesus was reviled. Jesus was spit on. If you think you're going to get through life without some of that, I'm, I'm just here to tell you it's not going to happen, especially in today's world. Now, you, you might have been a Christian in the 50s and gotten away with that because our country generally respected Christianity. And, but not today. Not today. It's probably not going to end. It's going to get worse and worse. The, 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 the Western church, the American church, we're not dead yet, but we are on life support. We're on life support because, be honest with you, this isn't preached in a lot of places. You need to be on your game. This is not a day when, when I'll be honest with you, if, if sports is more important than getting into your Bible, then you've made sports an idol. If, if anything in your life is more important than staying hooked up with God, and, and working yourself to where you can hear his voice and obey him instantly, if anything gets between that, it needs to be out of your life. I'm preaching better than you're saying amen. 
Now, Matthew 24, 37, I already quoted it. As the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. Said it again in, in Luke 17, 26. Proverbs 4, 18, 19, that's the answer to that though. He says, the path of the just is like a shining sun that shines ever brighter unto the perfect day. The closer we get to that perfect day, which is the day that Jesus returns, our light should shine brighter and brighter and draw a bigger contrast. Amen. Now, let me just, um, um, well, let me, I want to read this quote. And then I want to encourage you a little bit since I've smacked you around a little. Um, one of the things, and this is, you'll recognize the quote, but this was a quote for Martin Niemöller. Martin Niemöller was a Lutheran pastor in Nazi Germany uh, prior to um, the war. And once war broke out, he got thrown in a concentration camp. Actually, he got thrown in a concentration camp many years before the war and stayed in a concentration camp until the concentration camp was liberated by the Allies. And this is his quote, and you will all recognize it when, <clears throat> when I read it. He said, first they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Now that one will preach today because everybody's down on, you know, Brother Bernie and being a socialist because, you know, all socialists are evil. Well, I don't agree with socialism. It's not, I, I, I think it's a foolish way to govern. But if they're going to come after socialists, I need to be willing to stand up and say, no, you can't do that. And then he goes on, he says, then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was nobody left to speak for me. Well, let me tell you, they're coming after the Jews right now. The anti-Semitism is on the rise all over the world. And I'll be honest with you, I, there was a, um, some kind of demonstration downtown. It was a pro-Palestinian demonstration. And one lone Jewish guy stood out and held up the Israeli flag. And he almost got beaten. And I, I felt embarrassed that he would, there was only one man out of this entire city that had the gumption to go down and stand up and say, look, this is not right. Where were all his Christian brothers? And I don't care if he is a Jew. I'm going to support him. Anti-Semitism was burst out of the pit of hell. There are people, they're coming after, they are starting, you're starting to see this all over the world. Christians are being persecuted and murdered by the hundreds, if not the thousands, all over the Middle East. And it's not going to be long before you're going to, it, it won't be our government. I'm not that, I don't think we're that far gone. But you're going to see people, in fact, we're already seeing it at that um, one of the, the mass murders here recently. Um, the person that was, was shooting it was an Islamist. And he, one of his questions was, are you a Christian? Are you a Jew? Are you, you know, um, um, a follower of Islam? And if you weren't a follower of Islam, you got shot. If you said you were a Christian, you got shot. Well, I hope if that comes, and, and I'd be willing to stand up and say, you know, yes, I am a Christian. Shoot me if you will. But I will not deny him. People are making that choice all over the world right now. 
And it's, it's coming to our shores. It's already here. But the, we're getting darker and darker. But I want to encourage you. People are speaking out. Christians are finally starting to stand up and say, no, this is not right. But even more so, I just want to give you a, a, a couple of examples. And I can't remember Chase's last name, but we've been praying for Chase. If you don't know, um, Andy and Angie's um, son, Wyatt, swims. And this is a teammate of his. And he's been fighting cancer for several years, and he was cancer-free and, and was back swimming. And suddenly this early in the year... Suddenly he had these couple of growths showed up in his leg. And of course, if you've already faced cancer and you have some growth show up in your leg, it's like, oh no, cancer's back. Well, they got a doctor's report, did biopsies. Yes, it was cancer. But the good news is people everywhere, in fact, I, I, I don't have it available here, but I, ha I read a, a post that he sent, his dad sent out uh, as a text message about they were praying and had their entire church praying for Chase. Our church has been praying for Chase. The men's prayer group on Saturday morning been praying for Chase. And when the doctors went in, they were amazed. The two tumors that were in his leg were totally encapsulated. And they were able to very easily go in and cut those two tumors out. And they took a couple of lymph nodes just to test to see if the, the cancer had spread. And lo and behold, the cancer hadn't spread at all. And he's cancer-free today. Don Smith used to go to church here. Was, had neglected his um, colonoscopies, which, you know, it's easy to do. Nobody wants to go do that. But they just, he finally had to go. Something was wrong, and they, they discovered he had colon cancer. And it was already in stage 3, stage 4. Well, I can tell you, as a science guy, as a biologist, stage 4 cancers. You've, you've let the train out of the station and the train has already picked up a lot of speed and you ain't going to stop it real easily. And not only was it stage four, but it had spread to his liver. And when they start spreading, nine times out of ten, sorry, you're done. We can slow it down, we can, we can delay it, but you're going to die soon. He's cancer free today. Now the doctor, he's had surgeries and he's obeyed the doctors, but it's also the power of prayer. Uh, Ken Wood, not too many weeks ago, was having problems and went to the doctor and they said, well, you've got non-alcoholic cirrhosis of the liver. Well, why do I have cirrhosis? We don't know, but you've got scarring all over your liver. Well, you know, if you lose your kidneys, you can go on dialysis. they got machines can replace your kidney function. You lose your liver, there's nothing that can replace it. You either get a transplant or you die. Well, Ken, lo and behold, went back, checked with the doctors a few weeks later, and mysteriously, his liver's functioning perfectly well. And they don't understand it. Why are these things happening? Because the church, the people of God, are starting to stand up and pray. I just mentioned Elijah and Moses. The hallmark of both their ministries were miracles. And those miracles were talking to people that were Christians that had fallen out of the... Not Christians, but were believers, had fallen out of the faith. And they were road signs flashing saying, come back. Come back. Remember, when Moses came out of Egypt, he brought some Egyptians with him. It wasn't just Jews that left. 
There were some Egyptians and it was available to them. If they would believe and throw their lot in with the Jews, they could come out too. Today, God wants to do miracles to get people's attention so you can preach the gospel. Sitting right here, coming up 11 months ago, December 11th, dropped dead in the middle of a restaurant. If it hadn't been for Kathy Rapp, probably wouldn't have survived. But Kathy did CPR. And I know for a fact from talking to my cardiologist, your heart goes into an arrhythmia to where you pass out in a public place. There's a 5% chance you're going to make it to the ER alive. And if you make it to the ER alive, there's about a 95% chance you're going to have severe heart damage and or brain damage. They, the, the EMTs were ready to give up on her. They'd given her three rounds of medicine, shocked her three times. They could not get her heart back in rhythm. I showed up. I, my head was flipping out. But my heart said and told her from across the room. I didn't shout it. I didn't need to make a scene. But I said it to her. I looked right at her and I pointed. I said, you will not die. You will not die. Got to the hospital. They let me see her for a second before they took her back because they finally got her heart stabilized. Before they took her back to put the stent in, I laid my hands on her and I prayed over her and I said, you shall not die. Now, did I feel anointed? No, I felt scared. I was about to wet my britches. I was so scared. It was all I could do to not cry, just bawl. But I stood in faith. Four months later, she went in to have an echocardiogram. Let's see if you're going to have to have a pacemaker defibrillator because, you know, you're probably going to have quite a bit of heart damage. Wow. This doesn't make a lot of sense. You don't have any heart damage at all. Your heart's function normally. Went to, to the therapist to have her, her, her mental faculties um, measured. And they said, wow, you're not any crazier than you used to be. <laughs> no, they said, you're normal. You don't have any residual damage from this. How does that happen? Because in this day and age, God wants to show himself strong for those that will put a demand on what he's already done. It wasn't that God healed her. Jesus healed her before she ever had the heart attack. It was we stood up and said, devil, you're not winning this one. You're trying to steal something that's already ours. And you are not coming any farther. In fact, you're going to back up, bud. And he had to back up. So I want to I, I leave you with this. Come Wednesday morning, you may wake up and say, oh my God, what are we going to do now? What are we going to do now? We're going to turn to Jesus. We're going to be the salt. We're going to be the light because we are the church. And when it gets its darkest, we may need to dig in. We may need to turn the TV off. I know, boy, I'm talking a lot there. We may need to, to just take an hour or two and pray when God says, I need you to pray. And don't you quit praying until I tell you to quit praying. Well, I don't know if I could do that. Just pray whatever he says, however long he says. But be open to his voice. 
and do what he tells you to do and you will be the light and you will be the salt and people will then be able to come to you and say, what's this hope you've got in you? And you can say, well, it's not me. Believe me. On the outside and on the inside, I want to flip out. But I got an anchor on the inside of my soul. And it's holding me steady. And I want to cry. I want to moan. And I want to complain. I want to say, why, God, why? But instead, I'm standing on your word. I'm going back to Psalm 103. I'm not going to forget any of your benefits. Oh, yeah, but I feel so bad. Well, who's ever said you can judge your life by your feelings? You don't judge your life by your feelings. You judge your life by what the Word says. And when it's the hardest is when you have to hang on the greatest. And as our, if, our, if we have a great awakening, great. Personally, I'm believing that, that Jesus is coming back real soon. But right before He gets back, we're going to have a giant awakening and a giant revival. Because I'll be honest with you, and then I'll close with this. I don't see the United States of America much in prophecy. And I choose to believe the reason I don't see us is when the rapture happens, there are not going to be enough left to do anything in the tribulation. We're going to take most of them with us. I would love to see the city of Indianapolis go down to a couple of hundred people after the rapture. Wouldn't that be great? Well, it can't happen if we're not the salt and we're not the light because we are the only hope that this world has. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us. If this message has blessed you today, we invite you to visit us in person at Faith Community Church or online at FCCIndianapolis.com.